Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Russ Cordell. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. Starting at verse 1, Revelation chapter 2 says this. It says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, which is endurance, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou, thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, again endurance, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. You can be seated this morning. I'm not sure where God's, I'm just going to be honest with you here, I'm going to bear, bear myself a little bit. I'm not sure where God's going to take me on this thing today. I've been studying and preparing for this message for several weeks now. Uh, each time I brought it to the forefront, God said, put it away, keep working on it, keep praying on it, and I'm going to bring it today because God said today is the day. And we're in a place right now where many people believe that we're in a revelation period. As a matter of fact, I believe that the church is quickly and, and, and uh, uh, almost alarmingly hurling towards the time that we would call the revelation period. Some, I told you that evangelists and ministers across this world, people that I've not heard since the, since the 80s talking about the time of Jesus coming, more now than I've heard since when I was a kid during the 80s time frame, uh, are talking again about the end times. They're talking again about everything that we're seeing around the world, things in science, things in nature, things that are happening politically and all the adversity that we see around us. It tells the church, it tells the leaders of the church, those of us that are called to bring the alarm, that we are hurling quickly towards a period of time that we would call the revelation period. What an awesome God and Savior that we serve, that as we enter into the beginning of that book, that final apocrypha book that's written for the purpose of our blessing and our understanding, that we know what this looks like ahead of time. You know that God always provided a warning to his people before he ever exacted judgment of any kind? Always. Whether it was Sodom and Gomorrah, whether it was Noah, whatever the situation was, even the destruction of Jerusalem, God always provided warning to his people. The ones that were true, the ones that were serving him, he always gave them a messenger, always gave them warning and said it. Now I am by no means am I saying to you today that I've been called today to give you a warning that God's return is imminent. That's not what I'm saying, although I believe it is true. But what I'm saying is that I believe the church is, like I said earlier, is quickly and, and, and amazingly hurling towards a time of revelation period. And there's some things that God had done for us. There's things that he's written into his word to give us some insight, to give us some warning, give us some things to keep fresh in our minds. You know that the book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible that was written with a promise that said you get a blessing for reading it. No other book says that. It's also the book of the Bible that says that if you add or detract from the word, that you're accursed. So we understand that what's in that book, what's been written about all of those things, those events to come, are very, very important, critically important. Every word matters. You can't take one word out, one, put one word in. You can't change it. Everything is critically important. So we go into the book of, of Revelation. We know it was written by John. Many people call him John the Revelator. Some people dispute whether he was the original apostle John or not. Most of us in, in Modern Christianity believe it was the same John that, that, that walked right next to Jesus, the, 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 the apostle of love, the one who really understood the deity of Jesus, uh, the John 1 and 1 and 1 and 14 that understood that he was God manifest in the flesh. 
And so John at this point is almost 100 years old. He's the last surviving apostle. They're all, they're all dead. They've all been martyred. Uh, they're all gone. As a matter of fact, this is some 26 years past the time when Jerusalem had already been destroyed. The city was in ruins. The people of God were scattered all over the place. And John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And Patmos was just a barren, horrible rock. As a matter of fact, it's believed that he was enslaved into uh, uh, mining marble. It was a, it's, an, it's an island that was very, very heavily endowed with, with massive marble mines, apparently, whatever that may look like. I always get the picture of the little leather bag and the, the cat's eye, and he's in there cur- you know, carving them up. I'm, I'm sure it's for pillars and things like that, right? And so John is on this island, and so imagine where he's at. He's 100, almost 100 years old. Everybody's gone. Everything's been destroyed, and he's stuck on this island for the, perhaps the rest of his life, and I believe that was true. And Jesus comes to him, in this revelation that he has. He begins to speak to him and tells him to write these things down. He identifies himself again with John. John knew his deity. He knew who he was. John knew. John 1 and 1, as I said, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John knew it. And John was the, he was the the apostle of love and passion. He he knew God's, the, the side of God that was his love character. And he begins to preach and teach to John through this revelation, identifying himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. And he encourages John to begin to write this. Now he starts to talk in the first chapter of Revelation about stars and candlesticks. Now we know through study, and I'm going to get into it here just a moment, I'm going to start in Revelation 2, but we know that the, the, the stars are probably the angels, the ones that are seen over these churches. And he refers to the angels of the churches of Revelation 2 and 3. And he identifies seven specific churches. Now, he's got some character things in there, and there's some some study about this, and there's there's conflict, and some people believe that that the seven churches that he mentions, you know, they've all passed, they were part of an era, uh, there was something that had gone by, and that's true. Each of these churches had a period of time in history that they existed and thrived and, and impacted society. But there's something deeper about what he's sharing in these seven churches, And most scholars believe and most pastors and preachers believe that it's the characteristics, it's the the individual characteristics of those churches. In other words, they're not really churches, they're people. It's the people, because you and I both know that the church is not this structure and this building, the church is you and I, it's us. And so Jesus is giving us an amazing insight into what is about to come, and we know that the book of Revelation gets into heavy, it gets into uh, a lot of uh, uh, imagery and things about lions and, and leopards and all these different things, and it's not necessarily in chronological order, but it starts out giving us a tremendous insight into what we can expect, and, but insight into ourselves, I believe. It's a character study that we need to be aware of. It's that warning bell. It's that, hey, as things are starting to look ugly, as things are getting a little crazy, as as you're hearing all over the world, evangelists, pastors and preachers and teachers all saying, wow, this looks like we're running into the revelation time. Maybe I should get my radar up. Maybe I should take a look at what that says one more time and say, okay, time to introspectively look at who I am and what I am, right? And so he talks about the stars and he talks about the seven candlesticks or the lampstands, excuse me. Now understand that the lampstands, he doesn't say candlesticks, he says lampstands. Well, those lampstands are the churches. See, in that time, in that tradition, a lampstand 
was something that was a metal device usually made of, of gold, and they would fill oil inside those lampstands and would light them and create light, similar to the lampstand that's in the tabernacle that stands before the Holy of Holies, okay? And so he's reflecting that as the churches are the lampstands. We're not the oil. The church is not the oil. That's the Spirit of God, you understand, right? The Holy Ghost is represented as the oil. The light is not us either. The light is Jesus Christ. But the lampstand that holds it, we're to hold the oil and we're to allow the light, you see? And so the Bible says there in Revelation 1 that he walks amongst the seven lampstands and he begins to talk about these seven churches, okay? So what I want to do with you today is I want to just as quickly as I can. Now last week in my message, I talked about the seventh church. We, I incorporated it in my message. We talked about the church of Laodicea. Okay, so I'm not going to go there. We're going to talk about the six churches, the six churches that we didn't cover. Okay, back to Revelation chapter two. I said that where he says, thy labor and thy patience, he's talking to Ephesus. Now, this was a church that was was ministered to by Paul. The church was saved in the book of Acts. Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Many of these churches at this time, by the way, were were fraught with much of the same challenges. And I'm going to be a little bit direct and a little bit overt and some of the things that I have to say, but it's very critical in this message. It's very critical we understand that at this time, a lot of these churches in this, in this grouping of seven and this time in history uh, were, were so unbelievably pressured and influenced and tempted in the areas of sexual immor- immorality and impurity. It was all over the place. See, they were still worshiping God and Zeus, gods like Zeus and, 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 um, and Diana and, and all of these sub-gods, these Greek and Roman gods. And so that, that influence was constantly there amongst the Christians of these churches, but also amongst the citizens. And so it was constantly a pressure. Paul wrote against it all the time. Paul constantly wrote back to these churches. The, the, the Corinthians, my goodness. I mean, he'd, wa- he'd walk away from the Corinthians back into the whole thing with the, with the other gods. He was constantly having to pull them back and remind them of the message of Christ. But they, they had wealth. In many cases, they had wealth beyond uh, amazing uh, understanding of the rest of the world because of the things that they had. Uh, uh, Pergamos, for example, had a medical school in it. It's macrally placed. Uh, their image was the image of the snake wrapped around the pole. Did you ever see an ambulance driving by? And a little symbol, the medical symbol on there, you know what it is? It's that same staff with the snake wrapped around it. It's from Pergamos, one of, the, one of the churches that we read about here. And so many of these churches were plagued with the same challenges, but some more so in others in different areas, Right? And so uh, he understands our patience, the endurance. He said, uh, in the midst of the golden candlesticks, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, your endurance. And so what people will often do as they're reading through the seven churches, it's very common because we want to be known as the good church in the group, right? Everybody's trying to figure out which one's the good one. Okay, there's seven churches. Well, Laodiceo did not sound very good. I mean, they just, they went lukewarm. Remember we talked about that? God said, I'll spew you out of my mouth. But what we have to understand is there's just a little bit of every one of those seven churches in us, right? The question is, is how much of the character of that church is surviving in us today and will survive in us as we approach the time of Jesus coming? My hope and my prayer is that even for myself and my family and my friends and my church is that when those times are coming, we're, we're just pulling that impurity out of us at a high rate, that we're not even close to the characteristics of the bad churches as Jesus' time comes. And you're going to see why I'm saying that here in just a minute. Because each church in this list is admonished for their great works. And each church, except for one, 
is also noted of the things that they're doing wrong. He's got a word for that. But then he's got a promise. So the object isn't to go through the list and say, well, we're, the, we're Philadelphia, we're the brotherly love, and we haven't forgot his name. And No. The object is to say, what of each one of these churches still resides in me that I need to be watchful for, I need to be careful for, I need to not slip into uh, an ease of time and an understanding feeling, I've got, I've got God in my back pocket, it's all sewn up, you know, I'm, I'm saved, it's all done, I got saved 25 years ago and I'm good to go, I know God, I show up at church every week, he's saying to you that there's some characteristics about each one of these church organizations, these bodies of people that are just not pleasing to me and can slip in and can affect you. Behold, I come quickly, he says. Watch and see what he says as we go forward. Verse three. And hast borne and hast patience. And for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Well, that's awesome. That's, we've continued to work and do the things that God wants us to do. Nevertheless, he says, that's kind of like the, the but in the sentence. Like, I really like you, but. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Somewhat. Not everything. Because thou hast left thy first love. Now notice it says left, not lost. Left is an act of deliberate action. The people of Ephesus, he's saying, have lost their first, excuse me, left their first love, probably, in my estimation, and that of many that, of scholars that study these churches, have said that that first love that they lost is possibly the love for God and the love for one another. Now, come on, it's the, now you say, well, well, that's easy, I got that, no problem, I love God, and I love everybody. But clearly, there was a potential within us, within the people of God, to sort of feel like we had it all wrapped up, right? Many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not? And yet he didn't know them. Do we really love God? And what does that mean? What do you do when you love God? Do his will, do his word. Come on, it's all in there. You know, we've been over this. And love others. Oh, I love everybody. I won't talk to them. I'll turn my back to them. I won't extend a helping hand. But I love them. Right? Those things, are te- those things are possible within us. We rationalize and we justify behaviors that we think is all okay with God. Well, God understands that person was mean to me 22 years ago and said, and, and said my, my skirt looked ugly and I didn't like them anymore. And, and God gets it. So he's okay if, Right? Come on, now we rationalize, we're human beings. So the, in the Ephesian church, you have to understand, was very doctrinally pure. Paul really hammered it into him, like he really nailed it down. So much so that it's believed that the Ephesian church was so doctrinally pure that they, begot, they got dogmatic about it. They got so, so focused on purity in their doctrine that they started to get cold and callous. Let me read you what Charles Spurgeon said, my favorite Order. The Ephesian church was a doctrinally pure church. Sometimes a focus of doctrinal purity will make a congregation cold, suspicious, and intolerant. Come on now. When love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse, a powerless formalism. Adhesion to the truth sours into bigotry when the sweetness and the light of love to Jesus departs. Charles Spurgeon wrote that a hundred years ago. See, he recognized the idea that, that sometimes we can get human beings, we can get pretty self-righteous in our doctrine. Oh, I wear the right clothes and I look the right way and I don't say the bad words and I don't watch that on TV. And blah, 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 blah. 
But now, it's really easy to take that and turn that and say, but they don't. I saw what she was wearing. I know what he watches on TV. I know what they, you see what I'm saying? And so the warning there to the church of Ephesus is that we have this potential. There's a tendency there for us to get God locked down in our, in our back pockets, feel like we've got it all righteous and nailed down, and yet at the same time, we can lose our first love, love for him and love for others. Verse five says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. He says, remember, remember what happened. Go back and look at where it happened when something went wrong and you kind of got this way, right? That's what he's saying. He's telling the Ephesians, you need to remember, go back. When were you great? When were you doing what God did? When were you having people over? When were you teaching Bible studies? When were you calling up your family and said, hey, I just got saved at the church. I want to tell you all about it. When were you doing those things? Remember and get back, he says in verse five. Repent first and get back to those first works. Come on, now they say that the people that are first brand new coming into church are the most excited, the most fired up. They're the ones that are out there bringing in guests and neighbors and friends because they're just so excited. Hey, I just got plucked out of the pit of hell. Isn't that pretty cool? But you stick around for a long time. It gets kind of old. It gets kind of routine. It gets kind of challenging. Hey, look, I understand. We're flesh. We've been doing this a long time. The Bible talks about the people that will say, oh, how long are we going to wait? All this talk about God coming back. But the fact is, is that we've got to be fresh and new. We've got to remember like when we were first excited about God. Come on now, what are the first works? Remember how you used to spend time in his word? Dedicated to reading the Bible every single day. You were just eating it up. You were so excited. How about when you used to pray? Oh, all the time I'd pray, I was excited. Remembering the joy and getting together with other Christians. Oh, we used to have people over all the time. Anybody remember skip bow parties and, and uno parties? We were just constantly fellowshipping together like they were in the book of Acts. Remember how excited you were about telling others about Jesus. Now verse 5 goes on to say, or else I will come unto thee quickly. <laughs> so that's a, pretty, that's a pretty poignant comment. So you've got to remember these first works. You've got to repent of where you're at right now and go back to doing the first works. And if you don't, I'm going to come to thee quickly. And then he says, will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans were a group of people following this guy named Nicholas. Now, all you need to know about the Nicolaitans, and it's mentioned twice in this, in this section of, of scriptures, the Nicolaitans were people who stepped into the church environment in these situations in Ephesus and one other church, and they decided that they were going to be progressive, and they were going to uh, be, they're, they're raising the, the, the Christianity to a higher level. They were bringing it forward in modern uh, times, Right? Come on, anybody hear that stuff going on out there? Oh, we gotta, be, we gotta be progressive. We gotta bring Christianity up, and that's not true. What they were really about was living in excess outside of God's law and outside of the principles that we know in the word of God. They wanted to alleviate people of that, and they were leading people astray. He says the Ephesians hated that. They didn't like that stuff. The Nicolaitans, like, like any deceiver that you're f- familiar with in the body of Christ, claimed that they weren't destroying Christianity, this is according to Barclay, said, but that they were presenting an improved and modernized version of it. Come on, now it's going on all over the place. We run into people like that all the time. Oh, well, we don't need to do that anymore. We, 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 that's old times. That's back in the Bible days. We don't, we don't need to do that. Verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. 
Oh, I'm sorry, skip the scripture. Pass that. Skip my page too fast. Verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He's referring back to Eden. There's that perfect garden, that perfect Eden that he's promising us. And at the end of each one of these messages to the churches, he repeats it again. He that hath an ear, let him hear. So everybody's got an ear, right? Not just, not just the church at Ephesus. You understand? In other words, he's speaking to Ephesus, but he's saying, hey, everybody else, catch this part too. That's why we know, that's why we know that this information wasn't for a church that existed 2,000 years ago. And it's not just one church or this church, and we decide which one we align with, or hey, I'm just like Philadelphia, or I'm just like Smyrna. No, that's not, that's not it at all. He that has an ear, let him hear all of these pieces from every one of these churches and draw from the warnings of God that we know that we're following, we're ready to repent, we're ready to get back to those first works as he asked the Ephesians. Now on to verse eight, we talk about the church at Smyrna, and I'm gonna try to go through these rather quickly. I know we had a lot of time here at the beginning with our announcements. He that hath an ear, excuse me, uh, I'm going too fast as a matter of fact. Can I just give God time, is that all right? Can I just, I wanna apologize to you. I'm feeling the pressure of time as I know we took it, and I I just, now now I'm convicted. Let's give God his time and his word his time. Is that all right? I'm not watching the Packer game, so I don't know about anybody else. Verse 8. And unto the angel of the church of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna, really quickly, I want you to understand, comes from the word myrrh, which has to do with a perfume that's, that's used in embalming the dead. And this is key that that is their name. And uh, Smyrna was very well known for the the beginning of emperor worship. See, the Roman Empire still ruled the world at this time, and they started out uh, worshiping deities, and they started worshiping dead emperors, and then they started worshiping past emperors, and then they started worshiping live emperors. It was a process. And so this was a church that got wrapped up in what? Politics. They started worshiping politics. They started worshiping the power of the Roman Empire. He says, write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. So he's talking to Smyrna, and again, he's using the word death right away. He understands there's a relation there, that you were dead, you, were, you, were, uh, you didn't know God before this, and so now you're alive. How many are spiritually alive in the name of Jesus Christ right now because of his word and his power, right? I was once gone, I was once dead, and now I'm alive again, amen? He says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Now, what was happening was, is that in the time of, of uh, Smyrna, they were, the Christians there were under persecution by the wealthy. So the city itself, uh, the city and the church at Smyrna was wealthy, but the Christians were under constant persecution. They were being robbed and stolen from, and, and they weren't fighting back, and they weren't causing war, and they weren't tearing the city up. They were just accepting the poverty, and they were taking that on as somewhat of a, a sort of a badge of honor, so to speak, if you want to say it that way. Uh, but they were going through this tribulation and poverty. He says, but thou art rich. Now, when he's saying to the Christians thou art rich, he's not talking about money. He's saying that you know the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're rich in the knowledge of eternal life. So you may not have any money. You may be under persecution and poverty, but, but you're wealthy beyond the rest of the world, you see? And he says, I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and are not and are in the synagogue of Satan. 
And unfortunately, in several of these churches, there were these groups of, uh, of Jews that, that uh, were professing to know Christ and be religious and all of that stuff. But you know the Sanhedrin and, 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 and of course, the Pharisees, they were terrible. They were horrible people. And so they persecuted those that turned to Christ. And so he says, they sit in the synagogue of Satan. Wow, that's a, that's a harsh, wow. I mean, that's basically saying you're going to the church of the devil. Verse 10, fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation 10 days. Now, it's believed at that time, he didn't literally mean, Jesus didn't literally mean 10 days. It was a phrase that was commonly used at that time that meant just for a little while, for a short period, you're gonna go through some challenges. The devil's gonna mess with you. If you're in a, if you're in a, a season of peace right now and things are going good, just wait. You're going to have some trials. He's going to throw some stumbling blocks at you. He's going to make things hurt. You're going to get a sickness or you, COVID-19. You're going to, right? Just wait, but just for a little while. Doesn't God always come through? How many here in this room, raise a hand. How many here have been through trials, have been through that prison for a little time and God has brought you through? Come on now, we've seen miracles. We've seen people's lives in very danger of death and they've come back uh, uh, healthy. Uh, and we've seen uh, marriages healed. We've seen relationships healed. We've seen people healed physically in their bodies, spiritually, in their hearts, mentally, in their minds. Right? He'll get you for a little while. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. Now Smyrna at this time was, was an athletic city and they were really really big into all the games and all that kind of stuff. And so they understood the terminology of crowns. And at the time, what they would do is they'd give these athletes and these guys that would win these games, he, they would get crowns that were made of leaves and branches and stuff like that. And so they would be alive for a little while, but of course then they'd take them home and set them down on the mantle and they'd just rot and die, right? So they, he was relating to them, I'm giving you a crown of life. It's not ever gonna die. Eternal life is the promise that he's giving to them. Isn't this wonderful? It's just incredible imagery and the promise that he's giving, speaking to these churches, speaking to us. There's a crown of life waiting for you. Verse 11, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now, of course, we know from later in Revelation what that second death is, is when devil and, and, the devil and death and hell are all cast into the lake of fire. That's not for you. If you overcome, you shall not be hurt. This church, compared to the other six, had no evil spoken of it. Only this church among the seven survives today, and it has survived through centuries of Roman persecution and Muslim persecution. Isn't that interesting? Smyrna is still technically with us today. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. Hebrews 4 and 12, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. He's talking about his word. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. This was a place where they had a massive temple to the goddess Diana. And inside this massive temple, there was an enormous throne-like chair. This massive is the way I've heard it described in my studies. This gigantic throne. And of course, everything that was done in that temple was anti-God and was, was wrong in his eyes. And that's why it says that this church was, was reflecting the seed of Satan. 
Antipas was a martyr, was a faithful martyr. And history tells us that he had almost no story told about him, but that he was heroic in terms of what he'd done for the work for the work of Jesus' uh, church. And so uh, he lived here and he lived right with them and he was under persecution and yet he stood for God. And so God is giving us this example, this little insight that even though you may feel like you're living in a place, you're in a place where you're just surrounded and like everything's bad. I've heard Christians go out there and say, ah, I turn on the TV, it's evil. I turn on my, my radio and it's just nothing but bad. And I go to work and I hear the news and I pick up the newspaper and everything's evil and everything's bad. We live in Satan's seat. It's just horrible. That's not the way we were designed to live life. Where sin does abound, grace does that much more abound. And so this man, Antipas, lived in the midst of Satan's seat and he thrived, still doing God's work, even to the point of martyrdom. He still did God's work. He could have given in. He could have cashed it all in. He said, oh, life stinks. This is terrible. I'm surrounded by evil. Satan's winning. I'm all done. He didn't do that. He kept fighting, so much so that they martyred him. Now, I'm not super excited about the idea of being martyred. But I'm way more excited about that idea than the converse of giving in to the seat of Satan. Verse 14, but I have a few things against thee. So these guys had some stuff. He said, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast the stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. You're going to hear that quite a bit eating things sacrificed to idols. This was a bad, bad deal in the law. It goes back to Mosaic law. Consuming things, partaking of things, sacrificed to idols. What does that mean, Pastor? How does that apply to me? I I wouldn't eat anything sitting on some stone idol. Think about what the idols are today. Think about what the world can turn into idolatry today. What's sacrificed to idols today? Our time, money, our love, our adoration, our attention. You see what I'm saying? You know, you can consume time poorly, right? You can consume your money poorly. Things sacrificed to idols. You understand what I'm saying? It's a very bad thing in Scripture. Verse 15, he says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So they bring it up the Nicolaitans again. And he says again, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly. Says it again. This is the second time. And will fill against them with thy sword of my mouth. Excuse me, fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. That special provision that he gives. Just keep going. He'll provide. He'll give it to you. The world doesn't see this manna. They don't understand it. They, they don't understand it. He says, I will give thee the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name is written. Now, at that time, the tradition of giving a white stone came from, uh, from an invitation to a party. Uh, people that were acquitted of a crime were handed a white stone with their name on it. Uh, people that were invited to a banquet were given a white stone. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you do this, if you hang in there, I'm going to give you the white throne. I'm acquitting you of the crimes that the world has created and accused you of in your flesh. And I'm going to quit you and I'm going to invite you to the kingdom where you belong. And that new name that's written in there is your new name. How many know that when you went into the waters of baptism, you got a new name written in, in the book of life. You got a name that was Russell Cordell Jesus right? Richard Kylie Jesus. You got a new name and he's going to inscribe that name on that beautiful white stone and he's going to hand it to you and say, you've been acquitted, my friend, and now you're invited. That's what he's saying. Isn't that exciting? 
says, of that name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth. That's for you and God. Verse 18, unto the angel of the church of Thyatira write these things, saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes looking to a flame of fire. That represents the fact that Jesus is the judge. His eyes are seeing things, and he will be the judge. He will bring the fire. Now, one thing people must understand about Jesus to this point in time, the church is still here. You and I are still here. Jesus Christ has never judged one person. He has never judged a single person yet but he will. And when he does it, he's coming with eyes of flaming fire. In other words, he's going to be able to burn right through and he sees and he knows and his judgment is coming, but not now. Right now is the time of grace. Right now he forgives. Right now he accepts and he receives and that's the message that we have to tell folks. He hasn't judged anybody. He hasn't ruled you out of the kingdom yet. I said from this pulpit a couple of weeks ago, those two young men that were killed in Kenosha deserved an opportunity. Terrible people as they may be, we're not their judge. Jesus hasn't even judged them yet. And I'm sad that they're dead because there are prison ministries and people that could have reached out to them for one more opportunity. Oh, pastor, they were scumbags. They were guilty of horrible crimes. What does Jesus say about those crimes? Unless he's committed the, 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 the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, he is not a respecter of persons, and sin is sin. So none of the sins that I've committed in my life and things that I've done wrong are any worse or better than that person in God's eyes. I'm sorry if that doesn't agree with your philosophy and your theology, but that's true. Only this world judges at different levels in different ways based on different increments of sin and what they represent. He goes on to say, these things saith the Son of God who has his eyes like the flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. People wonder why they say stuff like that. Brass at the time was the, the hardest known material on earth, metal material on earth. Uh, it shows stability and firmness and strength. His feet were fine brass and they were perfect. Brass was always shined and brightened up and it was, it was always made perfect and it represented power and strength and stability. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Boy, we live in a world that's opposite of that, isn't it? <laughs> Folks, if you want to be a Christian in this world and represent Jesus Christ out there, rush to be the last in line. Because everything we see out there right now when you're, in, you're working with this world, especially in the United States of America, buddy, buddy, watch out. Me first, me first. My wife and I joke about that. We've gone down to places. We were, we were at Disney one year with some, with some family. She used to work at the Disney store, get free tickets, and we go down there with family. And, and everywhere you go, they open up the doors to one of these things. Man, they'll run over little children to be the first person to get in line. And so we had this little funny thing. We'd say, we're just walking along, just being good Christian people. And like this, run about, you know, and I'd be up there going, me first, 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 me first. Not loud enough that they could hear, just my wife. <sighs> Work to be last, because in the Bible, our promise is the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And that's our call. He says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. So this church did have some as well. Because thou sufferest the woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. There it is again. And I give her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Let's stop right there. Now the children just came back from Sunday school. I'm going to go easy on this now. 
This church was vexed with a spirit that seduced. And I know this is a serious topic. It's going to get real quiet in here, and I'm getting ready to wrap up. But everywhere, exponentially, natures of pornography and sexual immorality and impurity is just blowing up around our world. It is in the church. There are churches that I'm aware of. I've spoken to pastors that have called in specialists to address their people in their church privately amongst mostly men. But this is affecting women now at a greater portion. I just read an article the other day. It is blowing up in this country. Little, little ones, five, six years old, seven, eight years old are being exposed to these things. It's coming through cell phones and telephones and it's coming through Xbox and, and, and all these other ways and cable television, regular television. I'm being told they're, they're allowing more and more of this stuff. The spirit of Jezebel exists in the world and she's in the church and she was in the church at Thyatira and she was seducing. And I believe it is that there is a spirit with that name, that pornography name. I'm sorry to continue to use it. I won't say it anymore, but... My point is, is that we've got to be aware that if there's anything that's going to be vexing the people of this nation moving forward is we are going to be continuously bombarded and hammered with these things. Folks, we have to understand it's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. But people get addicted to it just like they do uh, alcohol and drugs and cigarettes and all of these other things. It's powerful and it's spiritual. And it is impacting. There are pastors and ministers, not only from our organization, but others, that have fallen to these things. It's a spirit that exists in the world, and believe it or not, it's in the church. She got them to commit fornication, to eat things, sacrifice unto idols, the whole, all the Balaam stuff. And it said at the beginning, the, the worship of Baal. Now, I want to I explain something. The United States of America is in the process of a Baal worship Revival. You understand that, right? One of the things that signified Baal worship was the immorality stuff I just said. But the other thing is things like sacrificing child, infants to false gods. Do you know that there's a temple of Baal in New York City? That there are Baal worshippers, people that are signing on, literally calling themselves Baal worshippers. This exists now, today, in the 21st century. We need to be aware. Because they're pulling people in and they're convincing people that it's all Okay. I mean, it's just being pounded out there every single day. Hey, love who you want to love, whoever you want to get with, get with, whatever you want to do, do the dance, do the thing. It's okay, it's all right. This is a new world, it's progressive, we're okay. We've got all these medicines and protections and stuff. Pop on uh, news the other day and I'm watching this thing and a, and a, and a, and a commercial comes up for, for a, a drug that's designed uh, as a preventative measure so you can go out and do all these things and, and not get diseases and things like that. They call it PrEP. In other words, I know I'm going to go out and be just disgusting and lascivious and do all these horrible things, but I got a drug that's going to keep me okay with it. So hey, this is our world today. This is what was happening in Thyatira. Verse 23, he says, Jesus says, and I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you, I say, talking to the Christians and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden but that which are, have already hold fast till I come. And he says in verse 26, and he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, that endurance to him will I give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father and I will give him the morning star. In other words, he's talking about himself. If you hold out there, you, do, you deny these doctrines, you just endure. 
I'm going to give you myself. I'm the morning star, he says. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And finally, I'm going to end with the church of Sardis. You can go on and read Philadelphia. Philadelphia comes up next. And that was the last one, but I'm going to cut a little bit uh, short here. We, we went a little long. Uh, Revelation 3, 1 and 22, excuse me, uh, 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 we're into Revelation chapter 3 now, starting at verse 1. It says, unto the angel of the church of Sardis write, where a modern, excuse me, these things saith he that hath seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name. That means a reputation. Now, Sardis, interestingly, was the modern, a city where modern money was born. It was a city of great wealth and decadence. This is where money began, the concept of coinage and, and all of those things. These things saith he, the seven spirits, uh, he says again, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, you have a reputation, that thou livest. In other words, the church at this time, Sardis, was very lively, very active. There were lots of programs going on, lots of things happening. Uh, they're doing all kinds of things. But he says, and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect. Now that word perfect there means unfinished or incomplete. In other words, you're doing things, the church is busy, you got your programs, things are going on, but you're far from complete. You're leaving things unfinished. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent, if thou, excuse me, if therefore thou shalt not watch. See, Sardis was up on a, on a great mountain. They had high cliffs, and, and uh, it was a very rich city, and it was very fortified, and they, they really put their trust in their building. They put their trust in the structure of, of, of their church, of their city. Uh, it was great. It was very high cliffs, very difficult to traverse. However, there were ways to get up into the city. There were secret passages, and so what they would do is they would not put watchmen out what does the Bible say? What does Jesus tell us? Watch, therefore. Keep the watch. I come at a day and an hour when no man knoweth, as a thief in the night. You know that Sardis was captured and destroyed twice simply because they wouldn't keep watch. Right? And so he's warning them. And then he goes on to say, Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, listen to what it says now, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Remember, I talked to you about the robes, the white robes, very significant. It's a sign of purity. You've been washed in the blood of Christ when you have that white robe. Verse five, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. And I'm gonna end with this, the book of life. There's a lot of idea out there. There's a lot of pernicious doctrine out there that talks about once you're saved, you're always saved, eternal security. I want you to know that in this place and in four other places in scripture, the Bible talks about the possibility that your name can be blotted out of the book of life. You see, at that time, a city like Sardis or, or, or uh, any of the others would have a, a city register. And then if you moved in and you lived in that city, your name was written down in that book. That was signifying that you were a citizen of that city. How many want to, want to be a citizen of New Jerusalem? Okay, the book of life is going to signify whether you're a, city, a citizen of that city or not. As a matter of fact, look at it, uh, Exodus 32 and 32 says, Moses said to the Lord, yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. 
Again in 32 and 33, he says, And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Psalm 69 and 28 says, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Revelation 3 and 5, of course, we just read. And Revelation 22 and 19, And if anyone takes away from the words of the book, this prophecy, I said it earlier, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which were written in this book. I mentioned it earlier, we can get into the position where we think we've got God in our back pocket, everything's okay, I'm retired, I've done the thing, I've done the, done the work, I'm all right. There's all kinds of things the enemy is going to challenge you with and is going to try to creep into the church. But if we get to the idea that everything's okay and I can do what I want and we're not watchful like in the city of Sardis and we're not mindful of endurance in doing what God has called us to do. The point is, folks, that Jesus came in as we're rushing quickly, as I said earlier, into the time of the revelation period. At the beginning of that door, the opening door of the book of Revelation, he said, hold on, before we roll on into the rest of the message, I got to let you know there's some things that can come against you churches, you people that carry the word of God, the Christians, the lovely ones. He had a good thing to say about every single one of them, but the warning was this, the warning was you got to endure you got to stay in there you got to watch for these pernicious idolatry and all of these terrible things that can seek into the church we see them in different ways i tried to relate them to you today of course we don't eat things that sacrifice sitting on a stone idol that's not for us today i explained that to you we've got to understand that just as those people were in danger we are too but we've got a hope today's a day of redemption Today's the day God rolled into this church this morning as we lifted up our praise and our worship and he moved back and forth across this congregation embracing every single one of you. Today is the day of redemption. Come to this altar, it's open. Come on down and just say, hey God, whatever I need to purify in my heart, anything I gotta get serious about. I don't wanna be Thyatira. I don't wanna be Sardis. I don't wanna be Smyrna. If it's the things that they did that's crept in and went wrong. I want to be that group of people, that one, each one that God said, hey, I've got some great things that you've done. I want to be in that group. Because I said five times in scripture, the precedent was laid out. My name, Russ Cordell, Jesus Christ, can be blotted out from the book of life. And he comes quickly. Amen. Let's stand this morning. Altar's open. I know I ran you a little bit long. Thank you for listening in on the messages and all the things that are happening in the church. Jesus' name. Lord, we're so thankful, God. We appreciate you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, for the book of Revelation, the blessing that you promised, Lord, as you moved on the Apostle John, Lord Jesus, to give us this message, to give us an understanding for today, what's around us, what's surrounding us, the message of hope, the message that we abound greater in grace, God, that we abound with the name of Jesus, the power that you bring, that you still walked amongst the candles, the lampstands in the churches today, God. You still hold the stars, the angels of the churches in your hand, Lord. And I pray right now in the name of Jesus, help us to grow stronger. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at AbundantLifeChurch.org.